thank you for joining me for another installment of New Books in Military History. With me today is Professor Stanley Payne, uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, whose most recent book is The History of the Spanish Civil War, published as part of Cambridge University's Essential Series um, in Essential History series, excuse me, in 2012. Thanks for joining me, Professor Payne. My pleasure. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about how this particular book, I mean, you're the author of, of so many books, how, how did this particular book uh, come to be? Well, it, uh, it took form uh, relatively recently, but in fact builds on things I've been working on for over half a century, because uh, a good deal of my work, one way or the other, was related to the Spanish Civil War over quite a long period of time. Uh, on the other hand, uh, because of all of the uh, complexities involved, and because I respected the, the narrative history done well by Hugh Thomas back in the 1960s and 70s, I had not really wanted to write a history of the Civil War itself. Uh, I did, however, write a didactic book for Spanish readers in the year 2005, and uh, right after that, uh, a Spanish publisher asked me to write a book devoted to the theme, Why Did the Republic Lose the Civil War?, which uh, was really a kind of a brief history. And just about that time then, the editor of the Cambridge uh, uh, Essential Histories series asked me to write a brief account of the Spanish Civil War, so I thought it would be a good idea to focus all of this in English and do the brief book for Cambridge. So this is a short history of the war, but builds on a very long acquaintance with the war and its origins and its aftermath. Sure, you're best known, of course, for your work on uh, fascism in Spain and then fascism generally in Europe and uh, and Spanish history in general. So it's a it's a terrific book, both because of your expertise and as you as you mentioned a few times, because of its brevity. I, I think I said in my in, when I initially contacted you that I always feel like I didn't know enough about the Spanish Civil War. It seems like such an important event. Um, and as I discovered as I went through the book, I lived with many of the kind of myths and legends that build up around the war, and it was. Uh, it's great to have a, a short volume that, that ties up, ties together so many of the, uh, the connections to other events going on in Europe. The Spanish War probably was the most mythified uh, event, at least for the scope of the number of people involved in it, one some would find in the entire uh, 20th century, and continues to be mythified down to the present time, and not really outside of Spain, I would say even, even more uh, inside the country. Uh, Spain is probably the Western country at the present moment uh, that has the most pronounced tendency to rather falsify its own recent history. But that's a, a different story which we don't need to go into at this moment. Right. Um, one of the things that I, I found particularly interesting about the book is the way you contextualize it in terms of other European civil wars. And of course, you also have a book on that subject uh, from a little less than 10 years ago. Yes, right? that book came out only uh, when, two, three years ago. And in fact, I undertook that book uh, precisely because there's a tendency to treat the Spanish War as a, a rather isolated occurrence as civil wars go. The only civil war, so to speak, it was the only European civil war of the 1930s, but 10 years or 15 years earlier, there had been lots of European civil wars, and there were two more big ones in southeastern Europe, of course, just a few years afterwards. So I undertook that book really out of the motivation to want to try to contextualize more broadly the Spanish War within the framework of European civil wars. 
and these include places like you mentioned. Obviously, the Russian Civil War is a, is a significant event. Um, as a German historian, of course, it's helpful to remind us about the German Civil War that, in effect, took place in the 1920s of sorts. But then other places like Finland and Hungary and um, maybe lesser known cases. Uh, that's correct, because the uh, Russian Revolution essentially opened up uh, a generation of European civil wars, though they took rather different form and had different kinds of outcomes in various countries. But this was a generalized phenomenon, which normally was intensified or, or even set off by the effects of the World Wars, World War One, World War Two. The unique thing about the Spanish War, of course, was that it was the only major European civil war which was not connected with having been set off in some fashion by the consequences of one of the two world wars. Except, of course, the connection to communism, and if you want a kind of a sec second second order uh, connection in that sense, that uh, communism comes out of the First right. World War. And, uh, Communism initially in Spain was not that important, but the thing to, for people to understand is that the entire generation after 1917 in Europe, to some extent, lived under some notion of a kind of fear of communism. Uh, in Spain, one had different kinds of revolutionary movements, the anarchists and even a very large revolutionary socialist movement, which uh, were called by Spaniards communism for short, though they really were not. And then, curiously, it was the dynamics of the Spanish War itself which uh, had the effect of bringing communism before, so that by the middle of the Spanish Civil War, communism was much more powerful in half of Spain than it ever had been before the war began. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about how the, the Civil War actually begins, because that's one of the key uh, points of the mythology. The left... And, and people sympathetic with kind of Republican and Democratic causes like to see, uh, you know, an aggressive uh, fascist takeover that destroys democracy, which, of course, is not entirely true. And the, and the right, on the other hand, uh, characterizes Franco's coup as a kind of defensive reaction against, against leftist, um, uh, you know, problems with the, with the leftist government, which also isn't quite true. Can you tell us a little That's bit about right. uh, the, the war was, was the result, of course, of the revolutionary process in Spain. And uh, the revolutionary process uh, began with the overthrow of the monarchy in 1931 and with the political dynamics of the Second Republic. Uh, yet the Second Republic began really as a democratic parliamentary reform regime, began to go off the rails starting in 1943. Uh, 1943 as uh, the socialists particularly began to move toward a revolutionary position so that uh, political democracy became uh, more and more watered down than corrupted and falsified, particularly by 1936. Paradox of it all was that had the Republican democracy of 1931-32, 1931-33 been maintained, there would have been no civil war. The military insurrectionists who actually started fighting in 1936 had no intention of restoring democracy. They wanted a much more conservative and authoritarian republic. But on the other hand, if democracy had been maintained, they would not have engaged in any insurrection. This was the, the uh, point of view, certainly, of General Franco, who didn't organize the thing at all, but he was the most important of them. And that would have held true for the majority of them as well. But talk a little bit about Franco, too, because it's interesting to see the, the kind of evolution of his role from 
again, maybe the most prestigious, the most um, combat experienced among the, the conspirators to then until 1977, the, the dictator of, of Spain. That, that wasn't really his intention. Right. To understand Sarko here, you really have to, I think, invoke something like uh, Karl von Clausewitz's notion of Wechselwirkung uh, in wartime, the idea of the reciprocal interaction of the two opposing sides and the mutual radicalization in which uh, one or both of them really adopts uh, new policies and more extreme positions than would have been taken at the beginning. Uh, Franco is the next topic, so I'm, I'm uh, finishing now a, a, a full biography of Franco, though that won't be out in English for uh, at least a year and a half until the, the end of uh, 2014. The paradox of Franco, of course, though he was always a very conservative, military-oriented man uh, who preferred authoritarian politics, was that like many military people, he was a law and order person. So as long as the republic maintained its own law and order, uh, he grudgingly accepted republic. As he put it, the republic uh, has achieved legitimacy. It was accepted even by the king, who voluntarily abandoned the country, and therefore we have to hope that this works. So that, uh, curiously, Franco uh, never engaged in conspiracy against the republic until the very last minute. He said that uh, military and politics normally make a hash of things, and that some military intervention will probably make things worse rather than better. This perspective in general is quite correct. And he only changed his tune very late in the day when he saw things uh, as he judged them, getting so bad in Spain that it would be more dangerous not to rebel against the leftist government than to rebel. So he threw his hand in almost literally at the last minute, uh, getting the quid pro quo since he was arguably the most prestigious single figure in the military, of the command of the only combat-worthy part of the army in the Spanish zone of Morocco. Uh, but uh, when he did that, he accepted the general perspective of the revolt, which was not exactly to overthrow a republic, but simply to overthrow the leftist regime and institute a more conservative republic. However, after the Civil War began, he began to see things rather differently and became radicalized by circumstances. Uh, in part because of responding to the major spontaneous and violent revolution in the leftist zone during the Civil War. He began to adopt the point of view after a couple of months, particularly at the time that he was elected commander-in-chief and de facto dictator at the end of September 36, that is, two and a half months into the Civil War, that a completely new kind of regime was needed. The sort of thing, of course, that was new, uh, the latest word in European politics was the nationalist one-party authoritarian dictatorship, uh, the, something like the, the fascist-type regime. The model would be here, really, Italy, much more than Nazi Germany. And that was the sort of thing on which he began to embark more and more after he became dictator in October 36. So, so the loaded question, though, and, and I hope I know the answer, uh, was... There is general agreement among most of the serious scholars that Franco was not a fascist. But he embraced a kind of fascism to some extent, and uh, he made his regime what one would have to call at least a semi-fascist regime. That is, it became quickly a one-party state. 
he took over major features of a fascist doctrine, and yet he was always cognizant of the fact that the national movement, as they like to call it, that is the movement of all of the, the, the right and part of the center against the revolutionary left, was a very broad-based operation that included all different kinds of political sectors. And he maintained a, a limited degree of respect, at least, toward these various other sectors. This was further modified by the fact that he found soon after the war began that the most important base of support really came from the church and from Catholic opinion, though the church had nothing to do with this at the beginning. This was because of the enormous anti-clerical revolution, the killing of 7,000 priests and nuns in the Republican zone, and the enormous violence directed against the church, the clergy, and the Catholic laity by the revolutionaries, which made uh, Catholic society uh, in general the main base of support. So this would have to be a very strongly Catholic regime. The result was a kind of cognitive dissonance, because a political semi-fascism and uh, a Catholic regime are really two quite different things and result uh, in uh, what I've just called a kind of cognitive dissonance, uh, which uh, he maintained for a number of years until toward the end of World War II he saw that the specifically fascist kind of regime, uh, which he had partly adopted in Spain, really now was discredited by circumstances, and he converted the regime uh, primarily into a Catholic cooperative uh, sort of regime, the most Catholic state in the world, as Franco liked to say. And yet he never disbanded the single party. He always kept the party, but he defascistized the party regime slowly, step by step, until by the later years of the Spanish regime, it had become a kind of bureaucratic authoritarianism and didn't really have anything fascist about it particularly at all. The parallel you draw there, however briefly, is with modern China, with contemporary China, right? An authoritarian regime compared uh, with right. the kind of uh, economy. Right. Franco, you can say, was kind of the inventor of the Chinese model. Not that I know that the Chinese really paid any attention to Spain, but this was the first major 20th century dictatorship which began to lay aside its more radical ideology and modernize its country in a strictly pragmatic kind of quasi-liberal market direction, which Franco particularly embraced in 1959. And that became the basis then of the, of the genuine modernization of Spain that took place under Franco. Uh, Spain is only a, a moderate-sized country, not a big power like China. Uh, but, of course, the transformation that took place under Franco was really uh, much more complete in terms of the restructuring of society uh, uh, than is the case in China at the present time. So Franco gets at least some credit for having originated the model, uh, though the effect of this on the world scale is much smaller than the effect of the modernization of China. Well, it's very helpful, I think, to, to complicate that, that labeling of Franco, because, of course, there is a, a fascist party, and, and the, the party that he establishes incorporates the name of that fascist party. But the, in your telling of the story, the actual fascists were relatively uh, minor characters. I mean, they provided a kind of activist militia at the beginning of the Civil War, but were rapidly co-opted and, and almost um, um, buried or overwhelmed, swamped by Franco with these other, as you said, Catholic and the 
Uh, right. They were they were coordinated actors. Uh, there was a period, 1937 and 1942, when you would say for five years, that is, being part of the Civil War, the first half of World War II, they perhaps would not be quite accurate to call them minor actors. They were one of the two main factors in the political regime, the other being the army. And the army officers, of course, mostly detested them because they, they saw them really as upstarts and vain radicals uh, who uh, were not benefiting the country. But they were not, perhaps, uh, during that five-year period, minor actors. Franco had them in harness, but the way they were harnessed was uh, playing a, a certain role in the state, though he was careful never to give them the state. He ran the state. They did not take over the state as in Italy or Germany uh, or uh, the Soviet Union. Rather, when Franco set up the state party, he took over the, the pre-existing fascist party and made it part of the state. Then he began to see more and more, uh, even before the downfall of Mussolini, that this was not the way things should go in Spain. And after, of course, the overthrow of Mussolini in 1943, he downgraded the Falange more and more. The other thing that struck me about the book is uh, that there aren't really any heroes. I mean, cer certainly you don't seem to shed any tears for the the, the leftist regime simply because of its of its incompetence and its its own authoritarian. Um, uh, well, it's more than a tendency; it's uh, predilections. It's. I was desires. asked a question uh, about 15 years ago when I was directing a summer course for the University of Madrid at El Escorial. Uh, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys uh, in the Spanish War uh, by a reporter for a student newspaper who, of course, wanted me to say the left were the good guys, the right were the bad guys. And I said it was la guerra de los malos contra los malos, the bad guys against the bad guys, uh, because both sides really behaved atrociously. Now, this doesn't mean that there was not a good deal of idealism by individual people on both sides. Uh, there was that. There was a great deal of heroism by individual people on both sides. That sort of thing certainly existed. But all the political causes of the war, violent uh, single-party revolutionary movements, uh, the uh, attempt to destroy all existing uh, institutions uh, under a violent revolutionary regime, the carrying out of mass murder on one side, the building of a one-party state, a policy of mass repression by Franco on the other side, neither of these is a noble ideal. Republican democracy was essentially a propaganda line encouraged by the Republican government and also by the Soviet Comintern, which propagated it very extensively throughout the Western world, but it didn't correspond to the realities of a very nasty situation in Spain in which, as far as politics was concerned, it was one set of bad guys against another set of bad guys. And just the, the incompetence that was in evidence on the left, um, both prior to the Civil War, but then, um, as you mentioned briefly before, just the, the immediate reaction to the, to the military coup was essentially to unleash an even more violent, uh, radical revolution that pushes many people into the, into the arms uh, of the That's Mexico, correct. Franco and the the problem of the Spanish left was it was internally divided. On the one hand, the powerful development of the revolutionary process under the Second Republic meant that Spain was the only country that had a really powerful revolutionary left 
in early 20th century Western Europe uh, as distinct from Eastern Europe. The, the nearest uh, corresponding thing would probably have been the uh, German Communist Party around uh, 1930-32, something like that. But uh, in Spain, the revolutionary left was really more powerful uh, than the Communist Party in Germany. But it was internally divided. And that would always have been its great weakness, even though it was in a position more and more to press the revolutionary process in the spring of 1936, because it ran in tandem with the existing Republican government, which depended on the revolutionary left to stay in power. Once the revolution began, and it really began uh, in one sense because of the military revolt, but even more precisely because the left Republican government decided the only way to fight the military revolt was not to give up the way the king had done in 1931, but to arm the revolutionary militia. That is, once the revolution had begun, because the Republican government had armed the revolutionary militia, empowering revolution, there broke out a mass revolution in the Republican zone, all the groundwork for which had already been laid, in that sense, it began almost spontaneously, although organized groups cannot be called uh, merely spontaneous, but it was explosive, it was immediate, it was also divided. And of course, uh, one of the main actors on the revolutionary side was the anarcho-syndicalist movement in Spain. Spain was the only country which had that oxymoron, organized anarchism. Well, the anarchists particularly believed in, in militia and not in organized government or organized army units. And that tended to be the, the case with the revolutionary socialists at, at first as well. Only the communists insisted on having an organized and effective army, somewhat like the Red Army in the Russian Civil War, and these were the circumstances that allowed the communists to come to the fore. But the revolutionaries remained divided, and particularly that opposition to a regular, to a, a regular organized army cost them a good deal in the first months of the war. They never entirely overcame that weakness. And of course, that's another way in which the Spanish story connects to the European story in, in terms of a divided left and the inability of, of uh, left movements to respond to fascism and other authoritarian, you know, right-wing authoritarian um, uh, movements like the Nazis and so forth. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, the, in, the Republic did have certain military advantages at the, uh, at the onset. I mean, it had the, the Navy on its side, for example, um, you describe Franco's movement, or I guess MOLA, the, the military coup, as really a movement of the junior officers and the, the lower ranks, because the upper ranks had been... Um, That's correct. Right yeah, it's called the, the generals' revolt in Spain. There was no revolt of the generals. A number of the generals, like Franco, revolted. There were a number of others as well. But most of the generals in command remained loyal to the leftist Republican government. It was a revolt of the activist sector of the officer corps, the, the middle and junior rank officers, who in some parts of the country simply took over control of the army and arrested their, their uh, senior commanders. But only half the army came out in revolt. And as you indicated, two-thirds of the Navy remained with the Republicans, as did most of the Air Force. The problem here was that though half of the army did not rebel, there were many pro-rebel officers in the nominally loyal units, and the, what remained of the Republican government then were really uncertain how to use the remaining army units, uh, and uh, only employed part of them, 
and ultimately uh, dissolve them altogether in the long run in favor of a new kind of revolutionary army. Uh, the revolution had disastrous effects in the Navy, though the left controlled two-thirds of all the warships. Uh, the sailors were more revolutionary in spirit by far than were army soldiers. In most places, the army officers managed to control their soldiers uh, quite well. This was not the case in the Navy. In the Navy, though, the proportion of naval officers in favor of the rebellion was overwhelming. Uh, their sailors simply rebelled. And uh, in many cases, the naval officers were put to the knife and thrown overboard. Uh, the majority of the naval officers uh, in the Republican zone, one way or the other, were liquidated physically. The problem then left with a Navy uh, without uh, naval officers and commanders, so that uh, the sailors' militia could not really operate their warships effectively. And the Republican Navy, therefore, did not employ its superiority at sea at all effectively. It could not fight its ships for a long time. Therefore, the, the smaller sector, about one-third of the, of the Navy, that was under the control of the nationalists, the insurrectionists, was able progressively to begin to outfight the Republican Navy and got, got the upper hand at sea for the greater part of the war. Of course, had uh, some Italians uh, support. Yeah, that's correct. The Italians provided a number of submarines, and then Mussolini committed the Italian submarine fleet, uh, first for a couple of months at the end of 1936, and then again in the late summer of 1937, to a kind of piratical, undeclared warfare against Republican shipping, and particularly against Soviet ships, bringing the main supplies across the Mediterranean to Spain from the ports of the Soviet Union and the Black Sea. This had the effect of, of shutting down the Mediterranean supply route for the Republic and, and made supply of the Republican Army more difficult during the second half of the Civil War. Though so, Mussolini realized very soon that he couldn't get away with this very long, so he had to put an end to the undeclared uh, the submarine pirate war by the Italian Navy after only a month or so in the late summer of 1937. Nonetheless, this scared off Stalin. And Stalin would not employ the Mediterranean supply route after that time. Everything had to be transshipped across France, which was slower and more expensive. So, you, so we talked a little bit about the Republican uh, weakness and maybe uncertainty at the at the outbreak of the war, but in the, in the long run, it's, the advantages really start to accrue to uh, to Franco and and his side. You've mentioned already the importance of, of religion and, and as driving many people into supporting the nationalist cause, the anti-clericalism of the republic, um, and the, that religion provides a key morale factor. Franco also seems uh, more, um, or at least his, his allies are more adept at managing the economy in his zone, particularly after the, he takes over the northern uh, regions where the, the heavy industry is. Well, the first advantage he had was that he, he had a professional army officer corps, and he had command of the only combat-worthy units, uh, the uh, Spanish Legion and the Moroccan units in the Spanish zone of Morocco. There were only about uh, uh, 20,000 men in those units, but uh, they were by far the best disciplined and the most combat-worthy. 
and he relied on them a great deal in, in the initial part of the Civil War. Not, there wasn't quite enough to give victory, of course, because the Soviet Union intervened during October, just as Franco was closing in on Madrid. But that was an important advantage early on that solidified the nationalist position. The fact that he had a professional army corps was also useful to him. The Spanish army was second-rate or third-rate in general, depending on how you evaluate it, but it was a regular army. And therefore, Franco's officers were, were better than uh, the uh, smaller number of regular officers on the Republican side and the new political militia officers. In addition to that, he got reliable support from Italy and from Germany. Soon after the war that uh, developed in the late summer of 1936, the Republic also got support from the Soviet Union. But in the long run, the Republic got uh, rather less support and it proved militarily less effective. Also, it had a, a less well-organized army making use of that support. So Franco had advantages in terms of his own army, in terms of his foreign assistance, in terms of the material supplied. Not as an overwhelming advantage, but nonetheless a genuine advantage. And uh, another one that he enjoyed was the fact that uh, under a rudimentary military government. He simply made better use of social and economic resources in his own zone. He maintained, and in some respects, even increased production so that his society and his army was better supplied with economic goods as well. Whereas in the revolutionary zone, as normally is the case in violent revolutions, economic production is dislocated by the revolution and goes down, not up. That was certainly the case with the Republican Spain during the Civil War. And, and not to prejudice uh, our listeners in particular who might be interested in, in uh, military history in a more operational sense, but Franco was certainly no Napoleon. I mean, you describe him as a, a very plodding strategist, uh, un, unaware of or, or unwilling to practice more modern ideas about... Right, he, he, he had uh, no concept of... Uh, very rapid or imaginative operations. He had no notion of how to go for the strategic jugular. He was not an imaginative strategist. He tended to move straight ahead in, in fairly, obvious, uh, fairly uh, obvious directions. On the other hand, it's often said that uh, amateurs do strategy and professionals do logistics. And Franco certainly was a professional extent that he did logistics. The, the basis of his army was always better organized. And uh, unlike in the Russian Civil War, where there were very rapid advances, followed by enormous rapid retreats, this was true for both reds and whites in the Russian Civil War. Uh, once Franco moved forward, his base was well organized behind him, and he never had to conduct any kind of significant retreat. So he was a plotter, yes. He was unimaginative, yes. On the other hand, he did organize a much more solid kind of army in the long run and knew how to make use of the advantages which he did have. We've seen many military commanders who have certain advantages who don't know how to make basic use of those advantages. And Franco did do the basic things, though he certainly did not do the imaginative things. He didn't make the kinds of uh, quick strikes that might have brought the war to a more rapid end. So I, I'm, again, as a German historian, I'm thinking of Rommel as the kind of great counterexample, right? Who who makes the, has these slashing victories and then has to retreat. Well, oddly enough, uh, 
made in the same uh, theater that Franco made his name in in North Africa. If I well, that's right. Uh, but, of course, the uh, kind of war that uh, Rommel fought in, in uh, mainly Italian North Africa, uh, in, in uh, Libya and in northwestern Egypt, was a, a full-scale World War II kind of warfare, whereas the kind of counterinsurgency warfare that uh, Franco engaged in uh, in the Spanish zone in Morocco was, by comparison, very simplistic. Uh, the Spanish did, after the first years, begin to use airplanes. Uh, they used very few tanks, but not only very few because uh, they couldn't deploy them effectively. You can't use tanks against insurgent uh, guerrilla forces, basically. They did use airplanes. They even used uh, poison gas. But uh, Franco never commanded in, in Morocco more than 10,000 men, and he was operating uh, in uh, rather rudimentary counterinsurgency operations, uh, which were mainly uh, putting down semi-irregular units uh, and uh, dealing with problems of, of terrain and surprise and supply and so forth. So he had zero experience with modern warfare. All that Franco knew about the kind of warfare they would have to direct in Spain after 1936 was what he'd read about during the 20 years uh, previously. The Germans and Italians were very uncomplimentary. Uh, Mussolini said that Franco had no imagination, no understanding he was going to lose the war. That wasn't the case. Uh, Franco was not necessarily going to lose the war. Germans said, well, he's a battalion commander. He didn't understand modern warfare. It's true that he had been largely a battalion commander in Morocco, and he didn't have any very sophisticated understanding of modern warfare, but he did try to make certain adaptations which worked by hook or crook. Uh, the criticisms made by the Germans and Italians of Franco from an point of view were not inaccurate. They were somewhat exaggerated, however. So uh, one of the things that occurred to me early in the book that you then later clear up, I think, uh, fairly well, is then if you know he made his name fighting this rebellion in Morocco, when when those forces leave to fight in Spain, why don't the Moroccans rebel again? I, I kept waiting for the the problem of this um, rebellion. This is a great case of the dog that did not bark. One thing that had happened was that by the time the Spanish, after 15 years of tremendous labor and constant combat, uh, 45,000 men killed, put down this small, meager territory in northern Morocco. They did organize a good system of uh, military and administrative tutelage of Moroccan Kabyles, so that by 1936, the Spanish system had Spanish Morocco pretty much under control. And then Franco and his people did a very good job of managing the North Moroccans during the Civil War. Uh, they made concessions to them without giving them any real power. They mobilized over 70,000 Moroccan volunteers because this was a very poor region of great economic hardship. And the fact that they were paying Moroccan volunteers five and a half pesetas a day, even though it was only half as much as was received in the Republican army, seemed like a lot of money to poor Moroccan boys. Uh, they also were effective in their propaganda, saying that Spain, of course, was promoting Moroccan interests and that Spanish Catholics, like uh, Moroccan Muslims, believed in God. They had common interests in, the fighting, in fighting the enemies of God. The atheist revolutionaries of Spain, the League with Moscow, 
who were destroying organized religion in Spain, uh, that had at least a little effect. And so a kind of carrot-and-stick approach used by the Spanish military authorities in Morocco was very effective during the Civil War. On the other hand, the Republicans could not bring themselves to make an all-out effort to organize a native rebellion. That should have been in their interest, and this is what the anarchists were always trying to do. Spanish anarchists entered into contact with Moroccan nationalists, tried to organize this kind of thing, but the republic that the Republicans had was that they believed that they could only win the Civil War, probably, if they got some kind of support from the big neighboring West European democracies, France and Britain. Well, uh, the problem there, of course, was that the British conservative government had no interest in uh, aiding the Spanish Revolution. Uh, problem with France, which was more sympathetic, because France also was under a more moderate kind of popular front government, was that France was a major imperial power and was the major power in Morocco because 90% of Morocco was the French protectorate. The Republican government could not pursue a radical uh, rebellion policy in Spanish Morocco without uh, unsettling French Morocco and upsetting the French. So, paradoxically, the revolutionary government had to follow a conservative uh, establishmentarian policy with regard to Morocco, which was in blatant contradiction with its own policies inside Spain. That was the only way it thought it could maintain good relations with France, on whom it depended, and whom it wanted to see intervene more directly to assist the Spanish Republic, and hence... Uh, though there were several different discussions about ways to do this at various points of the war, there was never any major effort to incite rebellion in Spanish Morocco. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Spanish War, which was full of paradoxes. This is, this is fascinating, and one of the reasons I, I really love history, and I, and I think especially good military history, and when you understand these contexts, the, the, the apparent logic of a particular strategy or policy can often just completely unravel because it seems obvious that, well, of course, you should have done this. You know, Hitler shouldn't have sent his panzers south. Uh, you know, but there are these larger contextual explanations that help you understand why, why event, why people feel constrained by. What one factor here also is the fact that, of course, after the autumn of 1936, the Republic, having sent all nearly all its gold reserve to Moscow, was dependent on the Soviet Union for military support. And Stalin was adamant that there could be no uh, revolutionary gesture in international politics by the Republican government, because that contradicted the basis of his attempt at that point to uh, achieve a common front uh, with France particularly, and therefore there could be no revolutionary policy in Morocco. This was a veto laid down by Stalin himself, so that's part of the broader context that you refer to. Do we have a lot of uh, documentation in terms of Soviet policy on this on this area? Have the, have the archives um, yielded much, or are we inferring or um, understanding uh, from public statements what the commentary This follows from public statements in part, but there is a certain amount of direct primary Soviet documentation, which is obtained during the 1990s, when the uh, Russian archives are much more open than they are at the present time. So we do have some direct documentation on, on some of these key points. Uh, we need more. And, of course, uh, under Putin, it's become more difficult to work in some of the Russian archives. 
but there is a certain amount of primary documentation as well as the, the public statements of the communists uh, and uh, the commentary of the Soviet government on these various points. Well, you know, as we as we sort of progress through the uh, the Civil War itself, and we've already begun to to mention some of these topics, the notion one of the other myths about the Spanish Civil War is that it it presages World War II. And your your comments about both Franco's experience and his conduct of the war in Spain kind of belie that notion. Um, what can you say about the without overstating the case, obviously the the, the connection that between problem the Spanish like Civil the War Spanish and the war itself is a very complicated one. Uh, as soon as the Second World War began, only six months after the end of the Spanish War, the defeated Republicans said that uh, this was simply a continuation of the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish War had been the first round of World War II. And in fact, in 1940, when Franco was interested in joining forces with Hitler, convinced that he was that Hitler had virtually won World War II already, Franco said the same thing. You're simply pursuing the kind of struggle of which we fought the opening round in Spain. Both these positions, however, were wrong, though the Spanish War was certainly related to World War II in a, in a number of ways. Spanish War was not the opening round of World War II uh, because it was fought about uh, a revolutionary struggle inside Spain itself, not really about uh, international politics and did not involve any kind of international war. The lineup in World War II was completely different from the Spanish War, either in 1939 with the German invasion of Poland, or after 1941 when the United States came into the war and the Soviet Union and Germany were at war. The Spanish War was a conflict between the right and the left, essentially. Uh, World War II in Europe was really begun by the Nazi-Soviet Pact, the German invasion. The Nazi-Soviet Pact was an alliance of what you would call the totalitarian left and the totalitarian right. In other words, the, the two sides at odds in Spain got together to start World War II in Europe, so it was quite a different kind of uh, conflict in 1939 in Europe as a whole. Nor can you say that uh, after Pearl Harbor, when uh, there was being formed a kind of broad popular front, was the same as the popular front in Spain, because the popular front in Spain was simply a union of the left. The anti-German alliance in World War II was a very broad alliance of all different kinds of political forces, from the extreme left in the Soviet Union to the extreme right in various countries, and including, of course, as one of its key leaders, Winston Churchill, a staunch conservative who said that if he had been a Spanish citizen, he would have supported Franco in Spain. So even after 1941, World War II was quite a different lineup politically. On the other hand, there's obviously a relationship between the Spanish War and World War II, uh, not so much in strictly military terms, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but because uh, the Spanish War did create a, a kind of international crisis, though not an international war. The main concern of British and French policy was to see to it the Spanish War not become an international war, but it was part of the series of confrontations in which the uh, Western democracies tended to be more passive and the Axis powers tended to be more aggressive. So although it was, uh, didn't contribute directly to World War II in any way, it was part of a pattern which encouraged Hitler to believe that he could afford to be uh, much more active and assertive in international affairs and would manage to get away with it in, in the long run. 
that extent, it was part of a, a pattern of things, though it was not a direct part of the action involved in 1939. Uh, it was often said, of course, in terms of military affairs, that this was a trial run for World War II. For the most part, that was not really the case either, because the Spanish War was fought with a bewildering variety of weapons on both sides, because both forces in Spain simply grabbed everything you could find during the war to fight with and used all different kinds of weapons, many of which were more typical of World War I than of World War II. On the other hand, there were major military innovations in the Spanish War, particularly the use of uh, air-to-ground support by the German Condor Legion, by the Italian Air Forces uh, assisting Franco, and by Franco's own Air Force. Uh, and the use of air-to-ground support presaged the employment of this kind of tactics by the Wehrmacht in World War II and by the Red Army as well. The Spanish Air Force was not well positioned, not at all trained to do this, but uh, they began to learn how to do it, and, and the Luftwaffe in Spain managed to improve its tactics. The idea that the Spanish War was a kind of a proving ground militarily has some basis to it. The Germans, the Italians, the Soviets all tried to test their weapons in Spain. The Soviets were the first to bring in really new weapons in terms of uh, their new fast fighter planes, fastest fighter planes in the world in 1936, uh, and their new medium bomber, as well as their new tanks. Uh, which were really the only fully combat-worthy tanks in Spain at any time in the war. On the other hand, these, these Soviet weapons were never employed very effectively in the long run. They were important in showing up the Republic, and the Civil War would never lasted as long as it did had it not been for the use of these new-style Soviet weapons, but they were not decisive. The uh, lessons, such as they might have been, learned by the various powers varied considerably from the war. Uh, the Soviet command got the idea by 1939 that the limited effectiveness of Soviet tanks argued the idea of the large concentrated armored divisions, which the Red Army had at that time, were not going to be effective. So in 1939, the Red Army command drew exactly the wrong lesson, began to break up the uh, concentrated armored divisions and scatter their armored forces throughout the army. Then a year later, after the success of the German Blitzkrieg in France, realizing they made a big mistake and tried to put their armored divisions back together again, but they had not done so completely successfully by the time of the German invasion in 1941. The French believed, on the other hand, uh, contrary to the opinion of some of the French Air Force officers, that the long duration of the Spanish War meant that the defense still had the upper hand as in World War I. That was not entirely the case and hence that it ratified their strategy of the Maginot Line. Uh, the Italians drew lessons on both sides, but did not really uh, use them effectively to upgrade their own weapon systems in time for World War II. The people who probably uh, drew the best conclusions were the Germans, who decided that the Spanish War was a very strange kind of war, fought in mountainous terrain in the Spanish Peninsula, and not very predictive of World War II, that the only thing you could really learn from this was that uh, air-to-ground support was very important, and they found ways of improving their own air-to-ground support and improving their own airplanes, and also the fact that they, they needed somewhat better tanks, at least, than the very small machines in Spain, and that their 80-millimeter anti-aircraft gun was a very good piece of artillery indeed and could be used in a variety of ways. So the 
the one thing maybe that you left out is what what the British might have learned. I don't know, perhaps from Guernica, or and you make the point that Guernica gets all the attention, but Barcelona, bombed by the Italians, was actually a much greater uh, tragedy in terms of loss of civilian life and so forth. But the the kind of terror bombing that comes out of the Spanish Civil War. Yes, the uh, the idea of terror bombing became very important in Republican propaganda from uh, the late autumn of 1936, that is about five months into the war. They wanted to emphasize, for example, the political executions carried out by the nationals. But of course, the Republicans carried almost out almost as many political executions as uh, the nationals did. And they began to realize that, uh, particularly in the, in the democracies, in, in Britain and France, the countries they most wanted to influence, uh, people were not really worried about uh, other political factions rounding, themselves, rounding them up and liquidating them en masse, but they were concerned about the danger of being bombed from the air in a new war. So they played up in Republican propaganda a great deal, the, the whole idea of terror bombing from the air by Franco to try to influence public opinion in Britain and France, and this had some effect at least in terms of public opinion, it did not change the policies of the British and French governments, but it did influence government opinion in Britain and France later on. The paradox here again is the fact that the bombardment of civilian populations was begun immediately by the Republicans using their navy and their air force to bombard civilian targets, cities basically, in southern Spain and Spanish Morocco from the very first days of the Civil War. And there were probably more air attacks against cities by the Republicans than by the Nationalists. But the Republican Air Force was less well organized and uh, didn't really accomplish very much in its attacks, whereas aerial bombardment by the Nationalists was more effective. Franco did carry out a few terror bombings in Madrid in November 1936 when he first approached the Spanish capital. They realized that these were not very effective militarily, and they did not terrorize the civilian population to the effect of shattering morale, but could be counterproductive both militarily and even more politically, and so he ordered an end to that. Uh, there were never, after that time, really any terror bombings by Franco's forces. The most famous incident was the bombing of Guernica, a small Basque town of about 5,000 people in late April 1937, during the Northern Campaign, carried out primarily by the German uh, Condor Legion, which used around 25 German medium bombers to hit Guernica. The objective here was to uh, blockade the Republican rear guard and make it easier for Franco's forces to advance from a different direction by knocking out a communication center in the immediate rear of the Republican forces. This was the objective of the Guernica operations, aimed at a bridge and roads and also military installations in town, uh, not to terrorize the city. But they did use incendiary bombs to destroy things in town and set off a big fire. And eventually, by the next morning, had burned about 70% of all the buildings in town. Now, burning buildings does not really kill that many people, so the, the number of victims was uh, not more than 100 to 150, but most of the town was burned out, and this was seized on, not at first by Republican propaganda, but by foreign correspondents, particularly uh, George Steer, a British correspondent, 
there's very much concern about the threat to Britain of, of uh, German uh, aerial bombing in the case of another war to try to emphasize to the British public the deadly effectiveness of bombing from the air began to write up the effects of the Guernica attack, and this was picked up very strongly by Republican propaganda, then became the subject some months later of a great mural by Pablo Picasso for the Paris World Expo at the end of 1937, uh, one of the great paintings of the 20th century, uh, which was probably the most important part of the whole thing uh, altogether. But uh, there were really, uh, after November 1936, no direct terror bombings as such by Franco's Air Force. Republicans were convinced this was nonetheless a good propaganda strategy on their part, and they asked the League of Nations to look into it, because there were a lot of ra uh, raids, air raids, in 1938, on the Republican eastern ports, which were the entry port for military supplies in the Republic, and, and other supplies as well. The League of Nations commissions, however, after inspecting a number of towns bombed by Franco's Air Force, said that uh, the attack seemed to be centered on the, the port installations and not in the, the, the main uh, civilian districts of the towns. So there's no indication here of a policy of terror bombing. This is, of course, never cited by pro-Republican historians, but the conclusions were correct. The only major terror bombing took place when Mussolini became very annoyed at the slow pace of Franco's operations and ordered the Italian air units on uh, Mallorca, the Balearic Islands, to carry out three days of indiscriminate attacks on Republican Barcelona. About a thousand civilians were killed in three days in these attacks on Republican Barcelona, and that was terror bombing, ordered directly by Mussolini, and of course irritated Franco a good deal, though he had to maintain good relations with Mussolini. Well, this has been, been fascinating. I don't know uh, what to add at this point. Uh, I. I've, I've really enjoyed the interview. I like to, to end my interviews asking the authors to maybe recommend something else new in military history that they've read recently or excited about um, that we could consider uh, on the podcast. Do you have anything there, in mind? There is a, a new volume out in, in English uh, by James Cortada, C-O-R-T-A-D-A, uh, called uh, Modern Warfare in Spain, which consists of a... Uh, selection of the most important uh, military dispatches by the American military attaches in Spain the Civil War. This is published uh, very recently uh, in the uh, early months of 2012, which is the, the most recent military publication in English uh, on the Spanish War. Uh, most of the recent publication of the Spanish War, of course, has, has been in Spanish. Another book that's recommendable in, in terms of uh, Military Affairs and Propaganda About Military Affairs is a book published two years ago, maybe three years ago now, by Robert Stradling, the British historian, called Your Children Will Be Next. Robert Stradling, Your Children Will Be Next, on bombing during the first months of the Spanish War, and particularly the propaganda usages thereof developed after that point, uh, published by the University of Wales. Uh, so that's another uh, interesting publication in English. Uh, dealing with Spanish War. Well, we do have a, a we do have a relatively broad definition of what is what is counts as new. So something that's a couple of years old uh, it can still be considered. But thank you for that. All right, well, well, thank you again, Professor Payne. This has been a fascinating a fascinating book and a fascinating uh, conversation about uh, Spain and World War II and all of those many connections. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to New Books in Military History. That was my interview with Stanley Payne, author of The Spanish Civil War, which appeared in 2012 from Cambridge University Press.